from Refine Labs. This is State of Demand Gen. This is a, a, a special uh, edition for the SAS.Founder founder members. Uh, Chris has uh, the audience uh, here. Um, our, we're going to focus around demand gen marketing you know, for B2B SaaS companies. Uh, I'll start with a few questions, but for the members, uh, if you start thinking about your questions for Chris, if they pop up throughout, if you've got some pre-arranged uh, uh, questions, uh, drop them in the chat. Uh, we'll largely uh, be taking your questions. This is the opportunity for you to ask Chris uh, your questions, but I'll kick it off. Uh, and so Chris, given that um, I think pretty much like all of the audience here, they're founders and mostly CEO founders. Um, so what should they uh, really kind of be doing all in terms of like um, understanding marketing and being actively involved in marketing for their business? What are your thoughts uh, around that? Uh, is that something they should just be delegating to the marketing team or like how actively involved should they be? Yeah, so I got that question taken down, but I'd like to go like a couple steps back for people so people understand kind of like where I'm coming from here. And so the first five years of my career I spent um, as an engineer developing software, a process engineer working on manufacturing lines, trying to make them more efficient, trying to improve gross margins, and then working inside of product management where I would go out and speak with customers to decide what features and products and things that we're going to build. And then 2016 happened. Um, and I was with a company where the products were already developed. It was in medical device, so product cycles are long because of the regulatory concerns and the issues. So it was basically a full-on commercial marketing role. And the thing that I picked up on at that time that I didn't see a lot of people pick up on is that the way B2B buying was happening was completely changing that B2B buyers were able to do most of the buying on their own, and that's how they preferred to do it, while companies still wanted to have a sales rep involved for most of the process. And so that's where I started to figure out and, and where I basically bet my career on demand gen. Um, and not from a perspective of like, I'm a marketer and I'm going into demand gen as in, I knew that I was going to run a company. I didn't know what it was going to be a service company. I expected it was going to be a product company. Well, we maybe we'll get to that later. Um, but um, I knew that I was going to put to build a to build a company on my own. And I started to figure out that marketing was the best way to get things done outside of product. So once you have a product, the way that you actually move to like true commercial viability and scale today. I believe to be through marketing more so than sales. I know a lot of people argue with me on that topic um, and that's totally fine. That's just the way that I see it with, with well-executed marketing. I think that's like unbeatable um, from a commercial standpoint. So with that said, um, getting involved in marketing, um, this is really interesting because I think I look at marketing more holistically than people in this room might. So I want to break down kind of like how I look at, I look at it in a very, uh, quote unquote, traditional sense. So product place, price promotion, basically the entire marketing mix, um, involved with where, like, who are we selling to? What are we selling? How is it positioned? How are we going to price it relative to other things in the market? Things like that. And so step one for founders and the thing I spend a lot of time, I, I worked in an early stage companies and spend a lot of time consulting with early stage companies because they, they don't work with our company specifically. 
And the thing that I see is a lack of customer understanding, which then drives the product roadmap. And so as a CEO founder, I think the number one thing that you could do, especially sub 10 million ARR is to really go out and talk to customers and really outside of the things about your product and really understand what's going on and segment segmentation is a huge one. SaaS companies, whether it's horizontal or vertical, just want to have the biggest TAM and sell to as many people as possible. The real value in the early stage, and it's a path that we've taken here at Refine Labs, so I'm happy to go through details on what we did, is to segment so deeply so that you can build and message your product around exactly that person where it's almost guaranteed that they're going to buy because it's so specific to them. And, and when you get specific, other companies don't get specific like that. So you you really look like the only solution. Um, and so we have one, which is customer understanding, which should then drive product, right? So there's one piece, I call that like almost foundational marketing. Like a lot of that stuff should be done before you're going to go and actually do promotional demand gen type of marketing. I know that in these types of companies, it needs to happen in parallel, right? So I'm talking in theory, they should happen kind of like sequentially, but that's not how it works. Um, but you get my sense. And then when that's all set up, then you move into promotion and demand gen you start working through, okay, now we know who we're targeting. We've gone out and talked to these people. So we know that they want our product. We know why they buy it. We know what pr problems and pain points it solves. We know who doesn't have these pain points and problems. So we're not going to be, we're not going to target them or we're not going to spend time there. And, and so to answer your question, I kind of got into some details there, but to answer your question, I think that as a, um, as a founder of a company, you basically have two, two main paths that you can take. You have commercial and you have technical and product. And so you as a founder need to decide which one are you. And if you're a technical one, don't, you don't have to go over and be the, the commercial founder. Maybe you have a co-founder. Maybe you just need to find the, the executive and give them a nice piece of equity in order to go and, and move that ball forward. Um, and so it's recognizing what your skills are. Um, I'm a, I'm lucky that I'm like, I, I would say that I'm mainly a commercial CEO. However, I understand the details of engineering and building products well enough to understand timelines and understand how to judge whether people know what they're talking about. And so as a CEO, you need to be able to understand the other functions of a business. But when you think about where you spend your time and how you allocate your energy, I would recommend looking at those two lanes and then picking one. Thanks for sharing that. And, and understanding from what I've learned about your journey with Refine Labs, right? Um, but the business is a couple of years old and you've grown it pretty quickly and your marketing is focused mainly on podcasts and LinkedIn. Uh, and that's it. I mean, I'm dumbing it down. Mm -hmm. Feel free to kind of like uh, correct me, but really kind of these two channels. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and, uh, that and why you pick those particular channels? And obviously, I guess kind of like with, with, the, with the SaaS companies, it's probably different in each cases, but what, what we could learn from that, um, for those that are, uh, that are here. Yeah. So, um, I think some of the things that people, um, don't see that happen in the background at my company is that the way that we think about marketing and the way that we execute marketing and the way that we communicate and execute like is completely different than how people do it right now. And so that's a, a subtle thing. Like it's our product 
is highly differentiated, in which case we don't even believe that we have competitors, right? People will perceive that there are alternatives, but when you actually like go and look at what's happening, we don't have any competitors. And so that's a, a key nuance that a lot of people don't recognize. Um, from there, you have like why we chose um, LinkedIn and podcast. It was really LinkedIn first. Um, and the reason is because there are times inside of social networks where you have enormous opportunity. Um, the, and it was very clear in 2019 that there were a lot of people spending time on LinkedIn and not a lot of people were publishing content there. And I started to create content in two places for my business in Instagram and in LinkedIn. And within a two, three month period of time, it was very clear, like forget spending time on Instagram low organic reach, mature platform, and move to all LinkedIn. And that's what we did and um, have been committed to that channel for a very long period of time. Um, in which case at like in 2019, I could put a post out on Saturday morning and I knew that a million people would see it. And so you've been doing daily posting since then, right? Uh, I've been doing almost daily, right? At the moment, my cadence is like four or five times a week. So it's not every, every day, but for the first year, it was basically every single day. And, and from that, uh, LinkedIn podcast, obviously other things you've been able to kind of like grow the business, uh, mm -hmm. you got, uh, how many customers sort of right yeah, now? The, like uh, there's one point on there that I want to make for people. The, the key is knowing which channels are the best to use right now not the ones that HubSpot used 15 years ago to build their company or the tactics that Salesforce used to get to 50 or 100 million ARR in 2005 or whatever growth path they were on. It's about what's working right now the best, which requires you to not look at what other people have done and to actually be masterful in the details of what's happening right now with your customers. So that's another thing that you're gonna get if you go out and do the customer research. Everything that I'm gonna talk about revolves back to understanding your customers well so you can develop products, message, and market in the right places. And so when you understand people well, your customers, they're going to tell you, hey, like I spend time in SaaS stock in this community. I um, also spend time looking at LinkedIn and um, I go to these types of events and I do this and then you kind of like, that's an easy way to craft your marketing mix. Just listen to what your customers say. You could do a survey to the decision makers at your like top 100, 500 accounts and, and see where, where do you spend your time? And then you could literally just start to allocate your marketing mix that way. It would point you in a much better direction than what companies use right now, which is look at a traditional playbook that was recycled from 10 years ago and then start to implement it. Yeah, we see, we do see that. Um sometimes around like predictable revenue let's say that was obviously written uh however many years ago mm -hmm. uh i want to say like 10 15. Mm -hmm. it served a lot of businesses kind of well to a certain point but you know is that still working now uh, and and actually uh, uh since then i've seen uh even i think justin one of our members uh, pointed me in the direction of uh, an author who's written a book called like death of the sdr which is uh, you know talking about like you know how uh, predictable revenue really you know, doesn't uh, is is not really shouldn't uh, working like right now, like as 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 well as it should, uh, mm -hmm. and how like you know you should have one salesperson take on kind of like all the roles uh, uh, as such. I don't know your your thoughts are uh, around that. Yeah, my thoughts is that it's not necessarily it could be the death of the SDR, but the way that I look at it is it's the evolution of the SDR. 
which is that up to this point, and I've just watched companies do the same thing, which is hire, you know, at a 1 million ARR type of run rate, hire five people straight out of college or like mid early twenties that don't understand, have never done their customer, the, the people that you're targeting's job cannot. And then you're going out and targeting a CFO or a CISO or a VP of finance or a head of people. Um, and they're expected to go out and, and bring value to those people to be able to move them forward in a sales process, to be able to make it worth like as an executive. And I'm sure everyone can imagine here, like my time's valuable. Um, and so when I like want to buy something, I want to spend 30 minutes with somebody that can add value and let me know whether or not this solution is going to work for me and help me understand that. And I just don't see that being the hiring profile of what people are looking for right now. Cause it's just churn and burn book meetings. Who cares what happens after that? Who cares about the customer experience is what it's ended. People don't say that directly, but that's how I, that's how I feel as a consumer that goes through a lot of those sales processes. And so I've moved to, and it's a really holistic go to market change when people do this, which is that a lot of the work needs to be shifted from what used to be sales to now into marketing because of how buyers want to buy and the access of information. And so we need marketing to take control of way more of the journey than getting someone to download an ebook so sales teams can chase them around. We need marketing to move buying processes at scale so that buyers are coming to your website or calling you or however they want to get in touch with you and saying, I'd love to talk to one of your sales about buying this stuff right now. Can I book a meeting now? So instead of us cold calling people saying, Hey, could you have a meeting with us? Here's a $200 gift card. Here's this. Can we have a meeting? What do you need to do in marketing to, to educate people so that they come and ask you for the meeting? And then when they ask you for the meeting, you win those meetings. I don't know, like right now from first call to close one, we win them at 12%. Um, actually, no, that's raw conversions from first meeting to close one. We win them at 36%. And so, um, that's the efficiency that you could get to if you went to this model, right? So companies choose instead to go high volume, low efficiency, which requires a dramatic headcount investment to support and a dramatic marketing expense to support as a po And then if you had conversion rates to close one that were 10, 50, I've seen 50 or 80 times better, um, in this model. Yeah. You have less leads. Conversion rates are way better. You need less salespeople overall because the salespeople are way more productive and they close at a, a way better rate. They get paid more, they stay longer. You can hire more talented people. And so the idea of scaling sales the way that companies have done it in the past, I think is over. There's a, there's a question from Dave Graham, CEO of CMAP uh, Software. He, says he likes the idea of demand generation rather than lead generation. Uh, on your website under digital marketing execution, you mentioned your demand acceleration framework. Could you explain what's involved in that? Yeah, totally. So um, inside of the demand acceleration framework, there are a couple of uh, requirements in order to kind of like take this on. The requirements are that um, you have a repeatable sales process that can move people from interested to close one, that um, people already come to your website and say, hey, I'd love to buy this stuff. And then they actually buy. Um, those are probably the two main ones. And then from there, you're looking at where is you can reverse engineer buyer journeys that end up in revenue if you have basic marketing rev ops set up um, and so you can look and see okay when the people that actually buy come through these couple of paths 
there's not that many, to be honest. If you look at the big groups, there's a big group of that will be, they come to your website and say, hey, I want to buy. If you're early stage, there's probably people that answer cold, cold outbound emails. And that, those would probably be two of the main ones. And then you can look back at what's happening. So I, if you look at just the marketing side, and this happens at 100 million ARSS companies too, they just don't look at it this way, is that people will come through, buyers will come through certain channels and then they will end up asking, doing a high intent conversion, which is either like a drift chat that books a meeting or a form fill asking for a demo or pricing or something like that. And they'll only come from a couple of places, which are typically Google search, paid or organic, direct traffic, um, potentially referral sources like review sites. The reason be, that they come from those channels and they're attributed that way is not because those channels are what's driving all of the impact for you. It's not, those are the places where buyers pass through when they're ready to buy. And so you have a, like basically a funnel. I hate calling it a funnel, but you basically have a funnel to know where, which pass people take in order that actually become customers. And then our job as marketers is to figure out why do people get to those places? When they're ready to buy, why do they go there? It's because that's what they want to do when they check out. So what are the steps that happen? What are the 10 steps that happen before they get there? They talked to peers. They probably heard about it at an event. They um, talked about it internally. Maybe some content was being shared in a Slack channel. Maybe they heard like people talking about it, right? So there's a million little touch points that are definitely not getting measured that you can start to understand. Um, so anyway, I got into a lot of the details there. Step one, reverse engineer where the revenue actually comes from, because that's where you're going to optimize from there. So once you do that, then it's trying to figure out where are the, where are the, I call it dark social, but where are the triggers that you're not able to measure right now that are actually driving people to those points? Um, some of those things right now for us, I'll just talk through our business is social networks, podcasts, communities, and word of mouth. And then from there, how do you create a strategy that accelerates those things happening? The, po the, the people that are coming through the podcast, the people that are coming through social, word of mouth, referrals, communities, how do you get more people to be talking about you in those places? And then from there, you can figure out how to do it. We help companies do it through paid. Um, we also advise on how companies could, could get it done organic. Um, but we use paid in a much different way than most com most companies do is in the question. Most companies use, it doesn't matter what channel, paid is only lead gen because I'm spending money, I wanna get a $50 lead, who cares? But if you actually look at the efficiency of those leads, becoming customers and calculate CAC, especially on things like LinkedIn ads or other like content syndication, other places like that, it's just not good. And there's much better ways to drive better marketing ROI there. Um, and so that's like a, a high level about some of the things that we, we look for. And you, you mentioned dark social there. So I think, um, I don't know if you, if you coined the, the term. I, I certainly hadn't heard about it before uh, uh, Before I heard you speak about mm -hmm. it. Um, but it, again, you sort of touched on it, but maybe for the members and for those that are listening, just to uh, a few more insights. So this is like having a podcast, getting engaged with mm -hmm. communities, you, you know, trying to be, speaking at conferences, things like that. This is what you classify as dark social? Yeah, so um, I, I won't pretend to take credit for this, although the I, I think that our definition is much stronger. So this has been something that's been going around since the early 2010s, but it was only focused on uh, direct messages inside of social. And I think that this continues to evolve into a place 
where it's significantly more robust than that, and I can go through it. So the reality of the situation right now is that B2B buyers trust their peers more than anybody else. They always have, but now they have direct access to all of them through things like community, social networks, other things like that. If you remember yourself as a B2B professional five years ago, you'll, re you'll remember that you didn't ha spend this much time with your peers like you do right now, not even close. I didn't know that many other B2B marketers that I could go reach out to and say, hey, what are you using to, for tech for this? How are you solving this problem? I didn't even know how to find people like that. And so there's been a major shift in where people get information because of this fact. Before they would go to search and they would search in Google. Now they go and ask people. They still make the search, but they do it in a different way in a community or a social network or things like that where they get 20 answers from people that they trust. And so dark social is purely defined dark, meaning that there's attribution is not tracking it and it's not creating intent data out of it. Social, meaning it's all driven through word of mouth that's being scaled through the internet. And so places that would happen, communities, so Revenue Collective, Dave Gerhardt's Facebook group, a LinkedIn group, any of the like peak community, any of those things, social networks like LinkedIn or Instagram, content platforms like YouTube or um, Spotify or others, um, events and meetups like this one, or the, you know, CMO uh, meetup for private equity or VCs firms or any of the other ones that happen like this where... I could shout out 10 tech tools right now, and there's no tracking around that. It would, drive a, it would probably drive a big impact for whatever I, business I shouted out, but that wouldn't be tracked. And so, and then there's direct word of mouth, which can come in a ton of different ways. Direct messages on social, Slack, um, Slack conversations, texts, phone calls, Zooms, any of the other ways that you can communicate directly with your peers. And then the final one would be internal Slack communication where an example of that is that I know that my, when I post on LinkedIn, somewhere between 20, depending on the, how, how the post does and how it's received, somewhere between 20 and 100 times that post will get shared inside of internal company Slack channels with teams, which means that somebody from this company, it could be a CMO that's giving it to their team, it could be a marketing manager that's giving it to the ex executives, takes my content and puts it and gives it directly to every decision maker inside of the company. No tracking, the most, probably the most valuable thing that could ever happen in a B2B marketing process, no tracking around it. And so I'm trying to help people understand because especially, I mean, not even especially across the board, early stage growth, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Com companies are obsessed with attribution and it's really killing their marketing. It's killing their ability to help customers. It's, it's stunting the way that marketers are able to innovate and do things. So you see a because of the reliance on attribution and the reliance on technology, you see a very cookie cutter approach to go to market that just needs to stop. Yeah, we, we obviously see that a lot, uh, given that part of our business is uh, events and uh, trade show and selling sponsorship. And, you know, we'll be speaking to, you know, heads of uh, marketing or event marketing uh, that will only make decisions based on uh, really kind of seeing uh, that um, their ROI and you know how many MQLs and SQLs they'll they'll get from this particular sponsorship which mm -hmm. I, I totally understand but it's we not really ROI have, though yeah right but exactly quantifying well, ROI of MQLs is the is the is the facade here yeah yeah exactly so, yeah. so they're, they're, they're measuring it and uh, and that that's how they're kind of trained or that that's their their thought process mm -hmm. but we do see some other partners that and I've seen some like uh, chart mogul just came back from Saster and they wrote a nice post and they were talking about getting the team there and speaking to customers and, you know, other things just that you can uh, 
get the ROI from mm -hmm. you know sponsoring an event. Um, so definitely, we do we see that uh, you know ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, to just a quick a quick point on that, like um, for whatever reason, it might be the demand waterfall from earlier. It might be how um, ad tech platforms have pushed it. It might be growing up in Google search, but for whatever reason, B two B executives and marketers measure the success and the ROI of their marketing on lead generation, not revenue generation. And so you see people back there that continue to like have high five about how many MQLs they get that they got them for $39 this quarter instead of 44 and never look at whether or not they convert any better. Yeah, they got them for cheaper, but the conversion rate drops by a little bit and then it's like pretty much net net. Um, and so we need to shift because of a lot of the performance marketing started in e-commerce. It made sense. It was direct response. I can I can get you to buy the $60 thing straight away. When it's multi-stakeholder enterprise SaaS, it doesn't work like that. Nobody's going to click an ad cold, go to your website, and give you $30,000. And so you need to have this layer in the middle where it actually goes through a human. And when it moves through a human, this is a, a backup because this is part of my manufacturing experience. I worked on process optimization and manufacturing where we were making millions of parts every year. And depending on how you ordered the parts of the process and how the suppliers delivered the parts and whether or not you had a right inventory, it could completely change the efficiency of the business and the overall gross margin of the business. And so I look at how we generate revenue as executives and companies in the exact same way. We have, it's a one, it's a big manufacturing facility that's ripe for process optimization where the actual manufacturing is what your sales reps do. SDRs and AEs inside of a factory trying to put together widgets so that they can go out the door and be sold, AKA a customer. And what comes into the factory is leads. And those leads come from a ton of different suppliers. And so you have all these suppliers coming through and you have all these leads and then they're coming through and then the SDRs are working on some of them and then they throw them away and all that time was wasted. And then they come in and the SDR is working on some and then they get to an AE and then the AE throws them away. And all that time was wasted. And then you do that scale over and over and over again. And if that happened and you were a manufacturing facility like Toyota or something like that, the first thing that you would do is you would run a supplier quality analysis and you would look at which suppliers are delivering me good parts that become sellable and which ones aren't. And when you start to look at that, you'd see that there's only two or three good suppliers. And so that's a way to look at it. And then you can figure out how do you make that? And then if you chose the right suppliers, maybe your sales cycle gets shorter. Maybe your win rates get higher. Maybe you need less headcount. You can completely change the overall, uh, the overall system. I'm not sure how I got on that tangent, but I hope it was valuable for some people. No, definitely. Um, this might um, tag on a little bit to the dark social stuff, but uh, Valentin uh, Huang from Harvester mentions uh, or asks, B2B SaaS buyers are flooded with LinkedIn posts, blog posts, and webinars. Which new types of content and channels would you bet on for the future? This is a um, the, the way that you're looking at it. I think you should shift your perspective. B2B buyers aren't flooded with LinkedIn posts, blog posts, and webinars. They're flooded with bad LinkedIn posts, blog posts, and webinars. The, and so it's not the channel's fault. It's the content's fault. 
And so when you think about this, it's really about adjusting your strategy. We have, we have 100 people that show up to our webinars every week for the past 83 weeks. It's not flooded. We have, for our live events that we bring on with people, we have 500 people show up. Um, people read my LinkedIn posts every day. We don't, I'm not, I'm not a big blogger because I just think there's better ways to spend my time. But if we wrote blogs, I'm, I'm sure people would read them. And so the key is like I mentioned, understanding your customers very deeply, understanding where they spend their time and then creating stuff that they actually want. And so what companies do is they create stuff that works, that helps them, not what their buyer wants. And so if you're not, if you think that it's flooded, it's probably a strategy issue. It's not, it's not an actual distribution channel issue. The, the, the top three places as a B2B company to market right now are LinkedIn, LinkedIn podcasts and doing live event, live virtual or hybrid events. Um, and so that's where I would, that's where I would focus. And then you need to figure out the details and the nuances for how it works for your buyer. Back to our, our own DG, Dave Graham, asked another question uh, <laughs> here. Are your paid ads more intent focused to attract people who are looking for a specific type of product functionality, e.g. scheduling software, rather than ads that drive people to eBooks and other content, e.g. a guide on how to be a scheduling ninja? So how do I, how do I think about answering this? I, it's, it's, I'm trying to figure out how to give you enough background so that you understand where I'm coming from, because it's not like a very direct answer here because the entire strategy is different. What you're asking here feels like a lot, like which, which route should I go to do direct response marketing? Um, and we don't, we do almost no direct response marketing in paid social. And so, um, if you look at SCM, it's only intent focus and it's only high intent focus. I'm looking for people that search with words. Like I want to buy this software. I want to know the price. I want to like, I'm comparing this vendor with this vendor. And that's the only things that I'm looking for in search. Like the intent is clear there and I'm driving them. I'm only looking for people that are ready to buy and want to do that. I don't spend any time on high volume, low intent keywords on Google. Cause I think it's highly cost inefficient. And then when you look at social, there's no real, in, there's no real declared intent from the buyer. They're not searching something that would tell you whether or not to put your ad there. Um, and so when I think about this, it's about how do we educate buyers in the places where they are so that they understand the problems that exist, right? So let me back up a little bit even more. It's like, if you have a product that people get value from, and you know that, you should look at what are the things that your customers believe versus the things that your the people that aren't your customers. And there will be gaps in the beliefs of what those people have. And then your job as a marketer and a CEO is to close the gap so that the people that are not using your product start over time to believe the things that the people that do use your product believe. It's just pure, pure community, like understanding customers and then communicating effectively with them. And so we use paid social which I think is the number one driver in, in B2B right now when used appropriately to guarantee delivery to target accounts and target buyers so that they understand those pain points, the features, the, the, so they understand that I'll walk through them individually, the pain points so that when they are inside of their business, they are more likely to see the, the problems in their business that we're talking about because they have awareness to them. When we talk about the features, so that over time, subconsciously, when they, dis when they start to think about that they're going to buy it, they spec in features that we have that are differentiated that lock other people out. Um, we, we can so 
we, and then we commu- basically market the category from there. And so, and when you market the category, you're viewed as the category leader. And so for instance, for us right now, like we're just, we're just telling people that there's a new way to do demand gen and they should think about hopping on and hear all the details why, and you can go and check the data inside of your business and you'll see the same things that we see. And then if they get on board that there's a change that they want to make, we're the only option. Hopefully that answers to your question, uh, uh, Dave. And uh, Justin, who I know is a big fan of yours, uh, Chris, Justin Halfpenny, uh, CEO Catify. Uh, he asked for a podcast or other content. Does Chris think it's better to concentrate on tactical, i.e. detailed advice or education uh, rather than high-level conversations, articles at the strategy level? The the answer is both here, right? Like I talk very, I'm a perfect example here. I go into details and talk about like how to bid on Facebook ads, right? And then I'm, I'm way up talking about go-to-market strategy and why a CRO should think about doing things differently. The blend is both. Um, I think that companies try and um, they don't market to a department, they market to an executive. And so their content strategy gets driven around that, right? And what I've learned is that the manager level employees that try some of the things that I'm talking about and then have success with them and then communicate the value and the success of what they've already done on their own based on my content to the CMO, that's a great lead in for the CMO to come and talk to us. And so we, um, like other companies I see are like, oh, it's a manager level employee. I would never want to talk to them. And I just think it's the complete wrong way of looking at it. Um, so from a, from a podcast standpoint, the answer is both most likely. Thanks. Um, Stefan Dubois here. We're back on uh, sort of dark social. He says dark social equals private communities, groups, events, word of mouth. I'm convinced that conversations in these channels drive sales decisions. But for a small SaaS company with three people in the marketing department, how should we organize ourselves to make meaningful contributions to all these dark channels? This feels like a lot of manual work. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because of the, the comment on a lot of manual work right? Because everyone just wants to automate everything. They want to just push a button and have everything happen and have the revenue come in and everything's going good. Um, which is, I think, what has led to a lot of non-customer centric marketing and sales um, is, the, is the reliance on automation and the, and the lack of like human touch, I guess. And so um, the short answer is here is that you shouldn't pick all of them. You should pick one. Um, and so initially for us, I picked LinkedIn. I, we didn't market on any other channel besides LinkedIn for the first almost 12 months that we were in business. And it was just at that point, we had one employee. It was me. We didn't, and then 12 months later, we had four total employees when we started, a, or maybe five when we started a podcast. Um, but the fir- that first wave was just, it was me on LinkedIn with nobody else. So if you got three employees and you don't have enough funding to hire people and you got to figure out something that when you can't, don't have money to run ads and you might have one salesperson or you're doing, maybe you are the person that's doing both marketing and sales. It's deciding how do you want to allocate that time for the biggest impact. And I think that understanding buyers and creating content on places that have high organic reach is the best place, the best way to do it. So pick one, it's most most likely LinkedIn, but I could be wrong. There could be a Facebook group or something, depending like you're selling to 
real estate professionals or something like that, a Facebook group would probably be a better place to be. But um, yeah, don't don't try and do all of them. When I when I talk about dark social, and this is something that I don't think I've clarified well enough, and I don't talk about enough is that it's not necessarily about being in all of the communities and then using the community as a way to post content or to engage or to to um, see what's happening even. Like, I don't, I don't do that, but what I know is I know that it's happening. And I know that when I produce content, I know that people will go into communities and share it or talk about it or ask if someone's used my company before. And so it's just, it's not about necessarily being in the channel and using it. It's about being aware that that's how people make decisions now. So it ties into <clears throat> you're creating valuable content for free. Uh, people are consuming that content, uh, getting value out of it, and then they're sharing it in these communities. But you're, as you said, you're not actively engaging in there and responding to people's posts within within communities itself because that that feels like a lot of work that we see people doing that as well yeah i mean i i replied to as many comments as i can um which typically is probably between 50 and 100 responses a day um and i'm busy so i know that people can do this it's just whether or not you're committed and what else you spend your time on i've been doing this for two and a half three years i'm positive that it's the best thing that a a commercial CEO, as we look at the definitions I made earlier, a commercial CEO, it's the number one thing that you could do ever. Go look at the companies that are growing super fast, Gravy, Refine Labs, Gong, other companies that a lot of people know and like. It's because their CEO and other people on their team are active in these places. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because as you talk about it, sometimes, and certainly speak for myself, you see these CEOs that are either, maybe they're on one channel, they're constantly on Twitter, or they're constantly on LinkedIn, and you think, as a CEO, how do they have time to be constantly on Twitter? But obviously, they're uh, optimizing for efficiency there, and it is working for them because they're building out uh, an audience. And perhaps we need to change our mindset uh, around that. Thinking, mm -hmm. well, if we're busy, we can't be spending time just being on, you know, a social channel all the all the time. Um, yeah, like when I was built. <laughs> When I was uh, getting ready to start trying to acquire a customer, I think we had two customers that I got through referrals and my network. And then after that, it was, how are we going to get more customers? We can cold email, email people. I can spend my time cold calling people because I don't have any employees. It's just me. So I can cold call people. I can send emails. I could spend time on social networks. I could do you know go door to door and knock on people's doors in boston i can all these things i can do what is the most effective use of my time to get a customer um and th this is the way it just feels um feels really obvious to me what do you what are your thoughts uh stefan says make sense and and thanks for that uh, mm -hmm. answer there around building brand uh, and is is this really tied into everything that you've been been saying like uh, from the dark social stuff or you're creating the the the, the content value because uh, my question was going to be about like when do you start building brand how do you how do you go about it what sort of things could early stage SaaS founders be doing to build the brand of, of their company i think that you need to market the movement. So a lot of people call it a category. I think that movement is a good way to look at it too. That's what you're marketing, not the company. And so if you look at my, our behavior, we're marketing about where, it's funny, we're marketing about where the, where it's, where the world of marketing is going. And then people have a clear choice. 
they either they either see the world the same way and they're going to get on because we're the one that's talking about it and we're the one that's actually focused on helping people move forward there or they're not. And so the as as early as possible is the is the answer because then when people start when people start moving across the movement there you basically have an audience of people that believe in the same things as you do that align with the value proposition of your product. And so um I don't uh, it's tough I'm I'm trying to change the 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 terminology around brand because I think that people have used brand as a way to not like marketers have used brand as a way to not be accountable to driving results. I think that people have a bad stigma about it because it's perceived as not driving ROI. Um, and so, and, and the, the real reason that people will, will join you on that journey is because they believe in the same things that you believe, not because of your logo or your tone or things like that. We got a, another question from uh, Justin Halfpenny there. So in, in the new demand gen world, is there still a place for super focused ABM outreach, especially in the early stages where you have no network and case studies? Certainly you can go, you can go that direction. Um, there's the, the easiest way to say this is there's a, there's a lot of ways to win, right? Like I've, pa I've paved one path that I think is, has the most the the drivers to create the most sustainable fast-growing long-term business if executed appropriately and i truly believe that and i think that i'm demonstrating that as we continue to accelerate growth here um, but there's a lot of ways to win there's plenty of companies that are out there with 12 salespeople, no marketers cold calling people growing and raising enough money to keep going so um, when you think about like where is there a place is there a place for this it's probably yes it's just about what percentage of it of your budget and time go to that as an organization is it 90 is it 10 it's somewhere in the middle um and then trying to 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 work through that right so for our company at the moment there's probably around 10,000 companies that we could sell to and at 10,000 companies I don't think that we need a named account or super focused ABM strategy because we're just going to be like, it's weird. I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. If I had, if 12 months ago you said, write down, like write down the list of the logos that you're going to go out and acquire and make your list. Zero of the companies that are our customers right now would be on the list. And so I think companies do a super targeted focus and then don't get any of those customers while they miss 99% of the market that they could have been marketing to if they had taken a different approach and they would have gotten customers that way. Um, so I think there's some type of blend, but I would be more heavy to, like I mentioned before, I'd be more heavy to marketing than that. You, me you mentioned earlier um, that uh, Refine Labs uh, doesn't really have any uh, competitors. Uh, a lot of our um, uh, I guess kind of members and uh, even like ourselves, so we have competitors, right? Uh, how much time do you think that we should be spending doing competitive research for, let's say, like a marketing perspective, uh, if, if, if any? Uh, and sh or should we just be more focused on our own kind of strategies? What is your view on the, the benefits of competitive research and, and that market uh, analysis? 
I find almost zero value in these activities. I'll tell you why and I'll tell you a better way to do it. If you're analyzing your competitors, then by definition, you're behind them because they've already done some research, sat in a boardroom, made decisions, started executing to a place where you could actually see it from the outside, which could have been six, 12 more months of time where they've gone through that process to do that. And then you're going to try and like follow them from behind. The second thing is who knows whether or not what they're doing is correct, right? And so um, the way, and I'll offer the alternative because I think this way is just 100% better is if you talk to customers, they will tell you everything about what's missing in the market. They'll tell you about the prices and what they think about them of competitors. They'll tell you who they like, who they don't, why. And as you understand that, your customers will tell you exactly. So three years ago, or whenever I started the company, two and a half years ago, we had a bunch of competitors. We were some commodity marketing agency. And over the past two and a half years, we've been able to, through deeply understanding what's going on in a specific target of business, create a product that doesn't have any competitors. And so that's the, the path. Maybe initially, because it's early and you have a you know base set of tech that you do have competitors, there's probably bigger ones. But if you chose the right customer and you followed what customers needed, over time, you would build something that is that doesn't have competition. Awesome. Um, well, I think we, we've probably got time for at least one more question from uh, the audience. Um, and uh, I guess kind of like if, if we look at your strategy <clears throat> for the next 12 months, Chris, mm -hmm. as you continue to build the company, <clears throat> is the marketing still going to be focused very much on what, what you're doing currently? Or are you looking at adapting that or like uh, over the next 12 months? Will it be just, I guess, kind of what's working uh, at the time, like, how, I guess, how do you know what's happening in six months time? Right. Uh. Yeah. Um, so from the outside, you mentioned at the beginning from the outside, a lot of the people will see that we're building a marketing agency. What they don't see is that we're actually building a strategy and research firm. And the reason that we have the best strategy and research is because we actually execute the strategies on 50 companies simultaneously right now. And so that leads itself to research products, different things like that, that we will, that we're moving through in, in alphas and betas, and we're going to launch in the future and become a blended product and service company, which will be able to allow us to completely change our overall go-to-market strategy. Um, and so that's kind of like what's next for us. If you look at just the nuts and bolts of the marketing, the things that we're going to add next year when we have a true product is we'll add uh, significant amounts of paid will leverage our incredibly talented creative re resources to communicate those messages to people in the places where they pay attention. And we know that they work because we do it on 50 SaaS companies right now and we measure the results against revenue. And so we'll add, we'll add more paid into the mix right now. It's been a little bit more organic because I just don't find that selling services through paid is a, is effective. Um, and, but the core mix. And then the last thing is, um, I mentioned, um, I didn't mention this, but I talk about it a lot is when you start to get marketing to work, you can start playing offense. And so most companies play defense in marketing. They're like, they only think about doing something different in marketing when they miss their revenue targets or where their sales team complains or when their CMO gets fired and they're like, oh, now we got to figure out what's going on in marketing. If you thought about it a different way and you started to get things to work and you start having momentum, then you can 
go and it's not even placing bets. It's it's just doing things that other people don't think are are realistic or smart, right? So while I was building on LinkedIn three years ago, other people were like, "What are you doing, bro? Like, go cold call. You gotta you gotta build a sales team and cold call people. You're never gonna get customers on LinkedIn." And I was like, "Okay, we'll see." And so, and but now we have LinkedIn and a podcast and events. And we keep scaling that out. The top level content is the same. I do the same amount of work. I invest the same amount of time. But underneath, there are resources now that are that are good. now we're doing a daily video on YouTube, and we're doing daily or multiple times per day posts on TikTok. And companies look at that and they're like, "What are you doing on TikTok?" And I'm like, "the The reason is because we're five or six steps ahead of you. You're still writing blogs." And so the the point here is that as you start to build, you can you can you you move further and further ahead of where your competitors can be, which creates a massive competitive advantage and ultimate scalability in a way that doesn't work with paid media, that doesn't work with scaling sales. Um, it's just uh, yeah, it's really incredible stuff. Yeah, I mean, just on the uh, TikTok thing, I've started be, uh, going on there as a user, but there's a lot of amazing content on there. And yesterday, I had a podcast call uh, with a, a well-known CEO who I asked about uh, TikTok and he said, well, you, you know, if I want to do dance videos, I'll go, I'll go on TikTok. But actually, <clears throat> I think there, there isn't that a great uh, perception as to what it is, is uh, the, the real value of it. Uh, so as I, I'm losing my voice here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I think, I think it, it could be a quite an exciting channel because the, the content that I'm consuming and the way that you consume it on, on TikTok is quite new and it, mm -hmm. it's like in a very short period of time but you get a lot of value on it so. yeah and and it's a great a great channel if you already can produce content that you're the people that you're going after want mm -hmm. i wouldn't i wouldn't go in there as a b2b company and make tiktok my first channel no, no. um but but yeah as you start to figure it out it becomes more of a of optimizing for the distribution channel because I already know I already know people like the content. Now it's just going to figure out how do I make the content work on YouTube? How do I make the content work here? Um, I did say one final question. There are two ones which yeah, maybe we can make yeah, uh, kind of sure. quick. Um, so we got Justin uh, Halfpenny going. So if Chris was starting a SaaS company today, uh, I take his main advice is get to know your customers. Is there anything else he would add or start with? And so when I say get to know your customers, when I say customer, it means market. So not just like, not just the people that pay you money, it's the market. And then when you look in the market, it's not just getting to know them, it's thinking strategically and segmenting them out. And so when I think about the way to start your company, it's segmentation, targeting, positioning. There's a bunch of people that we can go after, right? So people just pick like, uh, we're going to go after companies in financial services, more than 500 employees. But if you looked at that and you, and you looked deeper into it and you got to know people, you would understand that there's, there's segmentation levels that, don't, that aren't firmographic data about how many employees or what industry they're in or things like that, that are actually the drivers of whether or not people are good for your product. And so, so a couple of examples of that is when we were selling into senior living, there are basically three tiers of senior living based on like the condition and the health of the people that live there. And so one of them is independent living, another one is assisted living, and another one is basically when, uh, I think it's called memory care when treating patients with dementia. And we were trying to sell to all three for our product. But if you, and then when I went out and taught, and a majority of the market was in independent living. So that's the biggest TAM, it's the biggest opportunity, things like that. And then you go out and talk to people and you, and you see 
I look in the business data, it's like most of our customers are in memory care. I know it's only 20% of the market. I'm going to go and investigate that and understand why. And you go and see, and then it's like, because the people that are in here have a specific condition that your product treats very well, that people in these places don't have. And so if you're just targeting senior living, you're, you actually don't tailor the message the right way. You don't target the right people and your sales team's going in the wrong direction. So there's a, the segmentation is the number one thing that I can communicate here is to figure out who is your exact customer, not, not something surface level, like employee size or industry. And then when you can really get in there, then you start to position and message differently too. Thanks. Uh, hopefully that answers that Justin. And the, the final question uh, from Stefan here. And so do you have other examples besides Gong, perhaps some smaller companies uh, who execute the marketing you recommend very well? Um, I think that you should uh, look at what we do and then and then just adapt it for what your market is. I could give you another company, but we I think we really are the best at executing this strategy and we're about 60 employees right now. Um, and so I would look at that and we've been there's more scale to it and things like that, but we've been doing the same thing since when it was just one employee. And so I would recommend, um, I would recommend looking there and, and trying to reverse engineer the strategy, mainly on LinkedIn and a podcast, because those are the, probably the two starting points. And then, um, once you start to get that rolling, then you can start to figure out YouTube and other places. Awesome. Well, this is a great place to, to end uh, today's SaaS.Founder member live workshop. Chris, really want to thank you for uh, taking out the time uh, today to answer these questions from, uh, from our members. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, you know, great getting to have this opportunity to do this live uh, with yourself. Uh, if everyone can make um, uh, you, you know yourself uh, known in the in the chat and thank Chris, uh, that would be fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, listening to more uh, content uh, in, in the future and hopefully getting you to uh, the SaaS conferences next year, maybe both virtual and in in Dublin uh, as well. Would be uh, would be great. Cool. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate uh, appreciate the questions. Great to uh, great to see you here. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.